Hello, and welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Christine. So, what are we speaking about today? Today, we are talking about Terminal Phase, which is one of Christine's projects. Could you tell us what it is? Sure. So, Terminal Phase is a space shooter that runs on your terminal. So, like, if you've played any kind of, especially popular in the 80s and 90s, you've got the game where you're flying some spaceship, there's enemies coming at you, and, you know, you're just shooting little lasers at them. Terminal Phase is that kind of video game, but you might guess based off of its name. The defining feature of it is that it runs in a developer's terminal. So instead of using traditional bitmap graphics, it actually uses ASCII art, but it's animated and it looks like it's moving in real time. Mm -hmm. So... Why did you decide to build a space shooter that runs in the terminal? Basically, in the early phases of Goblins, I wanted to make sure that sprightly Goblins felt nice to program. And, you know, what better way to do that other than making a video game? Yeah. The reason that we're doing this Terminal Phase episode now, because Terminal Phase has existed for several years at this point, but we're doing this episode now because you are currently porting it to a new code base, right? Yes, so I've been porting it to, it's mostly the same code base, but I'm porting it to the Guile version of uh, Sprightly Goblins. So it is getting very close to being able to run on top of the Guile version. Um, I think the Guile version will also be nice because we'll be able to get it in various package managers of various, you know, GNU Linux distributions a lot easier, I think, mm-hmm. than we were with the Racket version. So hopefully that'll make it much more available to various people to try and play. And since we're going to be doing that and releasing a new version consecutively with that, uh, we'll also be having a new release, right? And so we've been talking about doing this Terminal Phase episode for a long time, but we thought, oh, well, since there's a new release coming up, maybe we should actually talk about it. And we can talk about the port and also, you know, remind people that, hey, you want to get in the credits? Now's the time to do it, basically. Yeah. For those who don't know, if you donate to our Patreon, we have uh, rewards set up. And those rewards are mostly recognition, both on the podcast and in the credits to Terminal Phase. Mm-hmm. So there were predecessors to Terminal Phase, right? This wasn't your first video game that you programmed. So before Sprightly Goblins, I had programmed a system called 8Sync, which was an actor model type system that I I had been kind of doing experiments. It's before I knew about object capability security. And I built a text adventure type game called MudSync that ran on top of that. And that was fun. So the idea of using video games to, you know, develop an experiment and make sure that something feels comfortable is, you know, not new in the stuff that I've done. And you've also done some tests with this kind of like animated ASCII art things, right? Yeah. Well, I did something for our anniversary, which you want to actually say what that was? Yeah. So if you've looked at the Foss and Crafts website, you may notice on our profiles for me and Christine, we've got little teacup versions of ourselves. That's from a collaborative project we made. Basically, the tagline for our house is let's just be weird together and then teacup versions of ourselves. And I made a embroidered version of it. And Christine, I made a ASCII art version of it that was animated. Yeah. So like the steam coming out of the teacups was animated. That's right. Yeah. So for Software Freedom Conservancy's annual fundraiser, I made a 
ASCII art version of a snowman greeting card that they actually sent out physical copies of this little greeting card. But as a bonus, I also made an animated version of this greeting card that um, had the snowman looking around and it had like snow falling from the sky. And it also had the tree lights, you know, changing color and stuff like that. And that was kind of a bigger test of making sure that all the objects were able to communicate correctly and everything. And actually, in between those two things, one of the predecessors was I ha- was experimenting with a kind of set of racket game development co- tools by Jay McCarthy. And one of them was RART, which is a picture language, but it uses ASCII art to build up pictures. And so a lot of these things were tiny experiments that I kind of grew. I mean, I had a plan of what I wanted to do with each one of them. I guess actually I didn't say this, but even before all of those, I built a version of Tetris that both ran graphically and also in the terminal as kind of a way of experimenting with racket stuff. And that used the same ASCII art library. So you talked about using terminal phase to kind of test out goblins. And one of the really cool features every time that you have given presentations on terminal phase that gets people's attention is time travel in goblins. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so the interesting thing, if you see this little demo, it shows, you know, somebody playing the game and then they crash. And then basically you can hit a button on your keyboard and you can move backwards in time and select a previous moment in time to be able to basically undo your mistakes, right? You know, that galaxy quest, you know, undo a certain number of mistakes, seconds of mistakes in history. The Omega device? Yeah, the Omega device, right. Um, so because maybe not everybody wants to feel incentivized to cheat, I have you have to pass in a, a flag and the terminal before you start the game for, in order to enable this. But the interesting thing is, is that I programmed the entire video game as in terms of it, you know, the way that all the, the gameplay works and everything like that before I added this feature. So after I programmed the game, I realized, oh, right, you know, like it would be trivial to show off this time travel stuff. And so I added a GUI for that in like, you know, an hour or two. But it didn't require rewriting any core gameplay code. Not a single line of that changed. And that's because Goblin supports transactionality, where if an error occurs, you can just kind of roll back in time. And you can kind of snapshot also a period of time. So I was like, oh, right, I can just keep some snapshots around and move backwards in time and show off some things. So this may not be as impressive to some functional programming type people, but... You know, for most people, I think this is kind of an oh wow moment, but even in a lot of functional programming languages, it can be, you know, what's interesting is that Goblins feels like a lot of kind of, you know, straight ahead type code, even though it's kind of secretly functional under the hood. But Mm -hmm. that's kind of a programming language. Unimportant detail. It's just, you know. Yeah. And then another cool thing about Terminal Phase is it's set in space. So you have to kind of give the idea of three-dimensional and like kind of continuing space and you did that with a parallax starfield can you explain how you did that yeah so a lot of space shooter games have this feature and actually the first version it's not required so the first version of terminal phase didn't have it right but it once i added it it dramatically improved i think the excitement and appearance of the game so there are little dots moving around in the background that are representing stars, and they're moving at different speeds, which is the parallax side of things. And they're kind of blinking and going in and out of appearance. And people really like this feature. It like looks really nice. But one thing that was interesting about implementing it is that when I was working on it, 
Initially, I tried using just periods, also like quotes and stuff like that. But it turned out this was not high enough resolution. Like, it looked really choppy when the stars were moving around, and it didn't look nice. So what I ended up doing instead is I ended up... The funny thing is is that Unicode has Braille characters. That's not funny. That's an important accessibility thing. Well, no. So here's the funny thing. Yeah. Is that I'm not sure how they would work if you're using Braille, a Braille terminal. Because Braille terminals Mm -hmm. already handle normal, normal ASCII. Yeah, that's true. And so do readable things. So I actually think that in some cases, I think they actually make things less accessible. But they're there historically because it's a different rendering and notation of those characters. And so they're there's separate characters for them so that's why i say it's funny is that mm. braille terminals do exist but they don't actually use the unicode braille characters okay but braille has like a larger number of dots per character so what 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 i did actually is that i use each one of those individual dots as kind of a higher resolution so that you know it's calculating which one of the braille characters it should use depending on which which stars are currently active so that is how you simulated three-dimensional space in the game but you're also moving in a spaceship through it how did you simulate movement in this ascii art world right you know for the most part you know if you're not moving forward or backwards it looks like your ship's just staying still while the terrain is moving around you Mm -hmm. and that's actually kind of true in reality your ship is if you this is kind of like if you have you ever seen an old like how they made like back in the original star wars films how they would make like the illusion of movement like there's that scene where there's the giant star destroyer whatever they call it that's like the imperial starship that's like moving past the camera it's like this giant like angular ship Um, but in order to be able to make that happen they actually did not move the ship they just moved the camera and actually vice versa sometimes they would move the ship and not the camera and sometimes you would move the camera and not the ship and like you have this illusion of it being kind of the same thing no matter what so i basically use the same trick the ship is actually not really moving around it's the whole terrain and all the other objects that you're dealing with that are actually moving about in space it turns out this ended up making things really complicated when it came to certain types of things like you know certain types of bullets that would home in on the player and stuff like that and calculating other types of things involved what are kind of surprising approaches to be able to make sure they move in the right way and stuff like that. But for most of the code, it's really easy and really nice to move things around. It's just certain types of things like, you know, the homing bullets and stuff like that, that end up getting kind of funny. Yeah. So here's the reason why it's goofy. If you imagine that there's a bullet that's moving towards your player and it's moving forward, if you used a global grid of like, you know, the whole level and you were saying, okay, well this bullet is moving forward on this angle, right? And it's moving towards the player. And then the ship and the terrain is also moving towards the, the player. The funny thing would actually be that that bullet might actually jump forward two spaces at once if it's both moving forward towards the player and also the camera has moved enough where it's going to shift things. Basically, if the bullet was moving in global space and both the camera advanced far enough to be able to move forward and the bullet advance far enough to basically move forward on the grid it would suddenly jump two places so figuring out how to deal with that was kind of difficult the funny thing is is that homing objects thus end up moving just relative to the camera movement instead of to kind of the global positioning the way that the the ships moving forward and the terrain do Mm -hmm. so pretty much all of terminal phase because it's running in the terminal is just text right 
So that makes level editing pretty straightforward, I would assume. Yeah, so actually if you open up the terminal phase repository and you open the, it's either in level slash or asset slash levels slash, depending on whether or not you're using the Guile or the Racket version. But if you open that up, you'll see that there's just level1.txt, level2.txt, and etc. And that's because it was really easy to make these because I would just open up Emacs and I would actually just type in the levels. Mm -hmm. And basically it's kind of almost what you see is what you get. You know, it's just the level is basically... Every time a column of text comes in, it's effectively inserting the various terrain or enemy ships and stuff like that that are, you know, written out in the level. Mm -hmm. So if people who are listening wanted to edit a level of terminal phase, they can do that? Yeah, it's very easy. Yep. And we can link to that in the show notes even. Yep. Was there anything else interesting specifically about goblins and the way that you were programming terminal phase? Yeah, so... Goblins uses this, and it's the reason why we're able to do the quasi-functional approach. But Goblins uses this idea of objects becoming new states. So, you know, if you have something like, you know, a chest that you can open and put something inside and then take something out, it would actually just be, you know, becoming the state of the chest being open, becoming the state of, you know, having this object in it, becoming the state of having a different object in it. And it's just actually describing its behavior for each thing. This turned out to be perfect for a lot of things in the game. So this ends up being really beautiful for things like, for example, when the ship is moving around, normally the player can move and fire and everything like that. And that's the alive state. But then if you, the ship is blowing up, it's actually like rapidly changing between colors, but the player can't move or shoot or anything like that. It looks like an explosion, right? And then in traditional space shooter style, it just disappears for a few seconds and then it reappears. The ship is blinking and you can move and fire but not be injured because you're invincible for a couple, for a couple of seconds. And then suddenly you're restored with full ability to move and shoot and stuff. And this is, you know, called the state machine. It's normally kind of a pain to do in many game engines and it's just really beautiful to do in goblins. It was like, I showed this to uh, one of my friends who also does actor model type things. And he was like, wow, we should frame this one up and put it on a wall. And I was like, thank you, Tony. So there are differences in the programming styles between the racket and the guile versions of goblins. Can you talk a little bit about the porting process? Yeah. So in the racket version, it was nice to start things out because the RART library made it really easy to build up ASCII art versions of things that I could, you know, kind of experiment with. And I think that was really nice. I think the, the tooling for building games was a bit nicer and better in the Racket version. However, the Guile version, while I was porting it, one of the big differences between Racket and Guile is that Racket is much more of a live programming language. In Racket, you kind of reload whole modules a whole bunch. Um, in Guile, basically you have these objects that are alive and you can kind of change how they work and you can change like basically functions that are currently there and everything like that while the program's running. And this ended up being really great because when I was porting the code, I got to a point where I was like, okay, well, I, th I think that everything's there so that it should be able to print to the screen. And I just started up this little loop using incurses and I was like, okay, let's see if I could just print everything out. And I did. And I was like, oh, hey, look, it's exactly what I would expect it to look like right at the start of the game. And then I'm like, okay, well, why don't I put this on a while loop? And I'll just say, you know what, 
just keep advancing the game. And I'm like, wow, the game is moving forward. The enemies are moving forward and shooting. This is exactly what I would expect. I guess I, my, my porting seems to be working. And then I was like, well, wait, can I control it? And I just, you know, forwarded the inputs of the the keys from and curses to the the game and i did not finish porting the entire game loop but suddenly the game was alive and i was able to move things and then i was able to kind of you know change the behaviors of things while it ran and stuff like that and i think that this this is this is kind of a philosophy of guile uh, in, in most lists that racket takes a different direction from of you know kind of operating on live things rather than dead things with racket you kind of just keep killing things and bringing them back to life over and over. The reason that you did this thing as a game is partially because it was a fun thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. And I think fun is a good motivator in general. It kept me incentivized to keep working on and getting things like, oh, I know I'm going to have this thing to build, so I better make sure it has these features, right? And that also leads to good testing, right? You know, like, was it actually pleasant to program in sprightly goblins? I had these ideas, but until I started building the game, I really didn't have this feeling of like, oh, this is what it would be like to really be on this, like committing on a project. And so I changed a whole bunch of things about goblins' design in response to building this out as a game. And so I think that in general, games are really good for as a motivator and also for, you know, the advancement of computing in general. And I think that terminal phase also kind of served as your release valve for a while there too like when you felt like you needed to be doing something productive but you were hitting a wall with your other work you could work on terminal phase and it was a you know productive thing you could do that was less stressful yep and video games you know i think have served this kind of role in many places there's space war the original video game of two ships fighting around a planet and Unix happened because, you know, the folks at Bell Labs wanted to play Space War, basically. So they made they made their own port of things. But, you know, culturally, even I think when you make something like this, when you do these types of things, it becomes fun. It kind of becomes part of your life, right? You see people do that, like, you know, people will have video game themed weddings and have their whole cake have like a Zelda topper and stuff like that on mm -hmm. it. Yeah, so I did a terminal phase themed pie crust for Christine's birthday a couple of years ago. That's right. Because when you make just like a flat pie crust instead of like the checkerboard one, you have to cut slits in the top of it. And if I'm just making random slits in the top of a pie crust, I can absolutely make Unicode characters of an ASCII spaceship yeah. that is shooting things out. Yep. And... Actually, that was a green tomato pie, right? Yeah, it was a green tomato pie, which is basically like all the same spices you would use for an apple pie, but instead of apples, you use unripened tomatoes. It's delicious. If you've never had a green tomato pie, I highly recommend it. It tastes very similar to an apple pie, but better. Also, green tomatoes, many of them, the ones that aren't bitter when they're green, the like... Like full-size tomatoes. Like full-size tomatoes. Not the case with cherry tomatoes. But with full-size tomatoes, a lot of them are actually better than cucumbers. Like, they serve the same role as cucumbers when they're green. It's no. a complete aside. This happened the year that we got a frost before a lot of our tomatoes ripened. We just... That killed all the plants, but the tomatoes were still green, but okay. So we just took a bunch of those green tomatoes off, and you made pies. Yep. And I also sliced them up for cucumber replacements. And we made pickles out of them. We also Th made pickles. Those were very oh good Oh my gosh, they were so good. This right. is a very long tangent. This is a long tangent. That is not where we meant it to go. So, oh, 
there is one more part of terminal phase, which is we mentioned it at the beginning, which is the credits, right? Yeah. So it's like almost a separate program, but there are credits in terminal phase, and it looks like somebody is running a bunch of commands at their terminal, and it's like printing things out like on an old terminal, the way that it like has the latency and prints things out, you know, line by line, and people really enjoy that. And there's some ASCII art, of, like zoomed in ASCII art of the spaceships where it would normally be one character. It like zooms in and like I drew like more advanced versions of the ships that might be attacking you and your own ship and stuff like that. And so related to that. Our Patreon existed before Foss and Crafts existed as a podcast. So the initial reward for Patreon was that you would show up in the terminal phase credits. And that's still true. Yeah. You can still show up in the terminal phase credits. The Patreon, in many ways, has actually shifted more towards the work that Morgan does for this podcast than the work that I've done, where, you know, the podcast was initially about, like, supporting the work on Sprightly and stuff. But it still actually does incentivize things like kind of the fun on the side things, like terminal phase, which was done, you know, I still think of it as a Fossing Crafts project, basically. Yeah. And even even though we use it to show off things at Sprightly. So, on that note... If you would like to show up in the tr- in the credits of Terminal Phase. Yeah. Please support us on Patreon and make sure that you choose a support tier because if you don't choose a tier, then you don't get... You don't show up in the credits. Yeah. Or acknowledged on the podcast. On that note, whether or not you become a supporter of the podcast, I hope you play Terminal Phase and have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christine Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christine Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at Octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community on hash Foss and Crafts on irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash foss and crafts. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty. With Racket, you kind of just keep killing things and bringing them back to life over and over. Happy October. Yes. Happy October. <laughs> Racket brings you all of the zombies. Speaking of October, fun is important. <laughs>